is, God willing, this afternoon, this evening and tomorrow, are intended to be very much exhortational studies. But like with all good exhortation, there must be uh, an important base laid. And in this first study, we're going to be considering certain aspects of John chapter 1. Now, we're well aware of the fact that in the churches about us that John chapter 1 is a real stumbling block because they go to John chapter 1 and they see there the possibility of a pre-existent Christ, a second person of a trinity, and all of those sorts of things. Well, we're not going to be viewing John from a negative angle. And might I say right at the start that there is always a danger as far as our community is concerned with the Gospel of John because whenever anybody comes along to present to us the Trinity or one of those aspects of the, as they call it, the Godhead, they seem to invariably go to John. I and my father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Know ye not that ye have eternal life. In the beginning was the word. And it's very easy for us to, to view the Gospel of John defensively as though it was a series of difficult verses to be explained away. Now, that of course is very unfortunate if we, can get out, if we get ourselves into that mode. So what we want to endeavour to see is the wonderful exhortation, the positive lesson that really comes to us. But in so doing, we've said that we want to spend this first session really laying the basis from John chapter 1. And so what I want to do is start with a quotation that isn't even in the Gospel of John. But it does set for us the theme which is very appropriate to the words of John chapter 1. In many respects, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which we're quoting from here, and the Gospel of John have a lot of things in common. Paul talks a lot about the righteousness of God. John is going to talk about the glory of God. And in many respects, these are at times interchangeable terms. The thing they have in common is they both focus on God. Now that's what we're going to be seeing this weekend. <clears throat> in a few moments' time we'll have a look at a comparison, a brief comparison of the four Gospels. John's Gospel is totally different because it focuses on Jesus as the manifestation of God. He revealed the righteousness of God, as Paul would say in writing to the Romans, or as John says, the glory of God. Hence our theme for today is, We beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let me just briefly outline what this particular statement says here on the transparency. It's taken from Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 which reads, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, has faith if you like, it's the same word, to the Jew and also to the Greek, for therein is a righteousness of God revealed. Now, Paul is not just saying that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, although that is true. What he is saying is that when we believe the gospel, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Now, let's put that into plain, simple language because that can sound to be very high-level, uh, almost biblical-type language after all it does come from the Bible, all it's saying is that when I believe God, I'm saying God is right. So God says, if you acknowledge that I am right, or in other words, 
you declare the righteousness, because righteousness is only the extension of the word right, isn't it? You are declaring the righteousness of God. God says, and this is good Romans language, I will impute, I will account, I will reckon unto you a righteousness which you've not earned by works of law, but on the basis of your faith. And so Romans then deals with the subject of the righteousness of God. Man left to himself has failed to manifest the righteousness of God. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. What man couldn't do, God has done. Chapter 3 verse 21 of Romans to chapter 5 verse 21, the righteousness of God was revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And then in the third section, Romans chapter 6 to 8, the righteousness of God in relation to the believer's life of holiness. Now as much as I'd like to continue for the rest of the weekend speaking on Romans, we mustn't do that because we've got to talk about John. But you see, what he's saying is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now I'm going to emphasise this point. You see that word salvation there and up there? I do believe that the Bible talks about salvation. I say that because in a few moments you're going to think that I'm almost saying that salvation isn't a Bible doctrine. That might sound strange, but just listen to what I'm saying. Okay? We acknowledge that the gospel is the power of God to salvation when one believes that therein is a righteousness of God revealed, declared or manifested. Thus we can say that the theme of the Bible is God manifestation. And that very good quote from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 21, there is no God else beside me, a righteous God and a saviour. So what we are saying is that when God is seen to be right, when in our lives, in everything we think and say and do, we endeavour to acknowledge that God is right, and one of the most amazing things is that even when we've done the wrong thing and we come and confess that to God, what we're actually doing is acknowledging God is right. When I come to God in prayer and say, I am wrong, I'm saying God is right. And so you see, when we come to God, there's two things. One, we don't just ask for the forgiveness of our sin so that I might be in the kingdom. We come to acknowledge our sin because we're saying, once again, God is right and I'm wrong. And the other thing is we don't just ask for forgiveness because we want eternal life and live forever, although there's nothing wrong with that of itself, but it's because God is the centre of everything. God manifestation. Now, I've got two quotes here. I'm sure you're very familiar. Well, I, I suspect you'd be very familiar with the first of these. And you might now see why I made that comment about, yes, I do believe that salvation is a Bible doctrine, but let's get our balance correct. These are some words which Brother Thomas wrote and were recorded in the Herald of the Kingdom, April 1858. Men were not ushered into being for the purpose of being saved or lost. God manifestation, not human salvation, was the grand purpose of the eternal spirit. Now bear in mind, I've acknowledged that salvation is a Bible doctrine. The gospel is the power of God to salvation when everyone believes that it's God manifestation or the righteousness of God which must be the focus of all our thinking. You know, it's very, very simple. It's very simple. 
Do we really love God for what he has done for us? Well, when you really love someone, won't you do everything you possibly can to please them? That's what life and the truth is all about. We're not just in the truth because there's a reward that's being dangled out on the end in front of us. I mean, that's the way you train animals, by reward or punishment. And unfortunately, some people see religion in that light, as though there's a reward on one end, possibly in their case heaven, a punishment on the other end hell, so out of a fear, they try to live a life that they think will earn them salvation. So let's get our balance right. From the very beginning, salvation wasn't an issue. Adam and Eve, we know, were not immortal, but neither did they become strictly mortal until after they'd sinned. So from the very beginning, it was always God's purpose that the salvation of a multitude would be incidental to the manifestation. It was not the original end proposed. Here was the proposal. The eternal spirit, that's God himself, intended to enthrone himself on the earth and in so doing to develop a divine family from among men. Now we're going to be talking a lot about this divine family, God willing, tomorrow. Especially in John chapter 17, which will be our exhortation. It's all about the divine family. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in them, I pray that they all may be one in us. You know, the divine family. A divine family from among men, every one of whom shall be spirit, because born of the spirit, and that this family shall be large enough to fill the earth when perfected to the entire exclusion of flesh and blood. Now, all of that is for the purpose of saying, let's get our values right. When I am prepared to elevate God in my thinking, and hopefully to the best of my ability in my actions, God is seen to be right, God is being glorified, and God says, I will give you salvation. The second quote comes from the pen of Brother Robert Roberts. and This was written in the book entitled A Diary of a Voyage, written after he had visited Australia. And in one particular place he was confronted, actually it was in Melbourne, uh, with some uh, problems on the subject of God's plan of reconciliation or the atonement as we call it. And he said, God has permitted the recovery of the truth in these latter days and there is a liability that it might be lost again through the inability of complacent minds, of limited grasp to see its wide-lying breadth and through their tendency to sympathise more readily with the human, that is my salvation, than the divine bearing, that is God manifestation, of its doctrine. The doctrines of the truth embody the thoughts of God and the thoughts of God are higher than the thoughts of men and the majority, therefore the majority of men easily fail to rise to the height of them or easily fall from the height when lifted up to them. Do you know, that's almost a perfect description of the Gospel record of John. In John you've got totally different language from Matthew, Mark and Luke. All, all commentators, whether they're in the truth or not, acknowledge that Matthew, Mark and Luke are what they call the synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John is just different. It's totally different language. I'll call it the language of the Spirit. So, the doctrine of the truth embodies the thoughts of God. The thoughts of God are higher than the thoughts of men. We're going to find that in the language of John, 
John doesn't take us up in easy stages. He takes us straight up. Here's perhaps a little expression you might want to just tuck away and and use it as a, a summary of John. John uses absolute language. Comes out particularly in his epistle. You're either in light or you're in darkness. There's no shade of grey. You're either dead or you're alive. If you're dead, you're going to be dead forever. If you're alive, you're going to be alive forever. Know ye not that ye have eternal life. We haven't got eternal life, but you see, we're either on the way to one or the other. There's no in-between. So John will use this absolute language and he'll record those expressions of Jesus which take us straight up to the top. Now what we're going to find in every single address, maybe with the exception of the exhortation, is that there's a series of discussions. The Lord discussing with Nicodemus uh, in our next talk. Uh, The Lord discussing with the woman of Samaria. The Lord discussing with his disciples. And invariably in John you've got people having a discussion and for all the world you would think they were talking on two different subjects. Someone comes along and asks a question and the answer the Lord gives seems to have absolutely no relationship to that question because the Lord looks straight through the question and he said, that's not your problem. The question you're asking is only to satisfy your curiosity or maybe it's a symptom of what your problem is. I will address the problem. So watch for that because that's going to come up time and again. John, in fact, becomes actually a very easy book to understand because it's a repetition of the same sorts of things. And here again, another statement perhaps worth noting, the only way to understand the Gospel of John is to keep reading and reading and reading and reading and reading it. You can look up some words in a concordance and it can be helpful. But essentially we've got to, there I use the expression, tune in to John's wavelength because it embodies the thoughts of God in a very direct way. Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. But Jesus wasn't God, but he was God manifest in the flesh. So every time John looks at Jesus, he looks straight through the flesh and he sees God there. So because he uses absolute language, the Trinitarians of course start to think, oh well he's saying that uh, he's actually God, he's God the Son. Because they don't understand that very, very important doctrine of God manifestation. Let's just finish Brother Roberts's quote though. He says, even the death of Christ has more to do with the exaltation of God than the salvation of man. Most men take in the latter idea, that of salvation, more easily than the former, that is the exaltation of God, or if you like, declaring the righteousness of God, and quickly get astray through the power of mere humanitarianism. Now, brethren, sisters, friends, young people, that's the essence of what we want to talk about this weekend. It's not just one of the doctrines of the Bible. The doctrine of God manifestation is the doctrine of the Bible. It's the doctrine which separates the truth from every other religion. God manifestation on one side, the other side of that coin is the doctrine of the atonement. How God can reconcile us unto himself. And if we were to go back to Romans, the answer would be that the righteousness of God was seen in Christ's life of perfect obedience. The righteousness of God was seen in Christ's death upon the cross and that will come out in our study in John 1 
and the righteousness of God was seen in his resurrection from the dead. That will also come out. So what we're saying is we are going to be listening to the words of God but we're not going to be taken up in simple stages. We're going to be taken straight up there and therefore we've got to become familiar with this sort of language. I'll say a bit more about this in the opening of our second talk when we're going to look at the first issue where the Lord has a discussion with a particular man by the name of Nicodemus and I'll say more about that language. So let's get on then with the Gospel of John itself. Very briefly, where does it fit into the, uh, into the record of the, of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? The four Gospel records present four different features of the life of the Lord. When we come to study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, very often people will uh, endeavour to harmonise the Gospels. Well, that's uh, quite useful uh, if we're looking to try and put all of the events of the Gospels into some sort of order and say, well, uh, Luke misses out this bit but Matthew adds it in and all of that sort of thing. Um, that sort of study of the Gospel has its place. In fact, that's probably the way most people study the Gospels. But I would suggest that really the best way is to take one book and to follow it through and then take the next book and follow it through because... The Bible is really made up of themes. You and I are the ones that always want to know in what order is something going to happen. When Christ returns, how is it all going to happen? Set it out for me in order. You can't find any book in the Bible that does that. But different books present different aspects of the theme of the work that Christ will do when he returns. So it is with the Gospel records. Matthew, it is almost certain, was written to Jews. The whole style of it is Jewish. The theme is about the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The genealogy, you know, those things which set out Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat so forth. The genealogy goes back to Abraham and David. Right? The key title of the Lord is Son of David. And incidentally, it's a title which every time it occurs in Matthew is always identified with the word mercy. He was to bring the sure mercies of David. If you want to tie up the cherubic symbol, we could say it's the lion, the lion, and the theme is basically prophetic. Now Mark is different. It has been suggested by those who've studied the style of it that it was written to Romans. I don't know that I could categorically prove that, but it's, it's a totally different style. Mark's theme is one of service. You know, the cherubic symbol would be the, the ox, the servant. And as a servant, or even a slave one might say, it was a bond servant, there is no genealogy because a servant, a slave, was a non-person. No genealogy of the Lord at all in Mark. There's no particular title, therefore. And Roma, uh, Mark, in writing to the Romans, presents a very practical outline of the work of the Lord. It's always work, words which say uh, that immediately he did this. It, it's, it's a book of action. We come to Luke. Luke was written to Greeks or to Gentiles. The theme is going to express the authority that's to be invested or to be vested in this man because he was the true son of man. And as such, the genealogy goes back to Adam. Cherubic symbol, the man 
and Luke's record of all of them is probably the one that sets out in order, best of all, the life of the Lord. So if you're looking for the life of the Lord set out in order, Luke is the one. So that when uh, we come to the book of Acts, um, it is uh, obviously Luke writing it, and he says, uh, uh, I forget the exact words now, but he says, O most excellent Theophilus, I have uh, set out to put in order the events of the ministry of the Lord and now I'm going to give you the ministry of the apostles. So, there it is, son of David, uh, a servant and son of man. Now, when we come to John, it's going to be just totally different. John is writing to believers and those believers can be any nationality. The theme is going to be the power that is vested in him because here he is revealed as the Son of God. But just bearing in mind our word about, about uh, absolute language, he doesn't very often call him the Son of God, he just looks straight through and he sees God manifest in the flesh. Now what's the genealogy? Matthew takes it back to Abraham, Mark has no genealogy, Luke takes it back to Adam. Look at the genealogy of John. In the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now there's our first illustration of the significant difference between John and the other Gospels. What a totally different genealogy. In the beginning was the Word or the Logos and the Logos became flesh. A Word became flesh. You can see how the Trinitarians say, well, a Word can't become flesh. So the word must have been the name of Jesus when he pre-existed. And so he was originally called the word of God and what he did was on one dark Judean night he got into his chariot, he drove out through the pearly gates, he came down over the ark of heaven, he landed upon earth, he threw off his cloak and he became man. And I'm telling you what, that's verbatim from what Billy Graham wrote in his book Peace with God. I lost my copy several years ago and my wife bought me a second-hand copy to sail down in Abilene a few days ago. That's exactly what Billy Graham said, that God got in this chariot, drove through the pearly gates over the ark of heaven and on one dark Judean night landed upon earth, threw off his cloak and became man. Because, you see, they don't understand the doctrine of God manifestation. So they've got to say then that in the beginning was this second person of the Trinity called Logos and Logos became flesh. Now what we are saying is that in the beginning there was Logos and let's now, although I don't know that we need to do this in any great depth, what we're going to see now is that there are two words, the word Logos and the word flesh. Let's just define them though for the sake of the record and we're going to see here that this is John's unique genealogy. In the beginning was the word. This word logos can have relation to the spoken word, but it also goes much further than that. Vine, not sure whether you're all familiar with Vine, but he wrote the expository dictionary of New Testament words, quite a good uh, expository dictionary of the New Testament. And he says that this word logos can mean the expression of thought as embodying a conception or an idea. 
Now the emphasis is much more on the idea behind that which is being expressed rather than the expression itself. Uh, Liddell and Scott, for many years the most reputable of the uh, Greek uh, lexicons, says, Logos is the word by which the inward thought is expressed or it's the inward thought or reason itself. Therefore, Logos signifies a declaration expressing wisdom, purpose and reason. And this was what was in the beginning with God. Might we just say briefly that in the New Testament there are two words that are translated word. There is the other word rima. For example, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, he talks about how the Lord Jesus Christ is the antitype of the, of the husband, that he cleanses his wife with the washing of water by the word. Now, that's the rima, that's the spoken word. What's coming out of my mouth at the moment are words, which is rima. But hopefully what's behind it is some thought or idea, which is really the logos. Now, you've got to connect the two. It's no God me, good me having something in my brain if I don't express it to you. So, what comes out is words, but what's behind it, together with the words, is logos. So, in the beginning, there was this, if you like, this plan or purpose or reason. You know, even in Genesis 1 it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, uh, let there be a firmament in the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth fruit. Now, it was as though there was power enough in those words because behind it was a plan. So, I think most of us will be familiar with this and therefore when we look at the opening verse of John chapter 1, it can read, In the beginning was the declaration of the divine purpose and the declaration was with God and the declaration was or represented God. And we've just got some other comments down here about the way in which Logos has been translated and we don't need to look at that in any depth at all and you can find those from a concordance. So what we've said then is that this Logos, this word, is not so much the actual spoken word as the plan, reason and purpose behind it. That was in the beginning with God. Now, says John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, we've got to define now briefly what we understand by flesh because this is going to be an important part not merely of our understanding of John chapter 1 but also of our understanding of God's plan of reconciliation otherwise known as the atonement. This uh, is one of those little uh, transparencies which in our Junior Opus Israel class we would spend the whole night on this uh, illustrating it from different ways. So, uh, whilst I don't treat you as a Junior Opus Israel class, nevertheless, it warrants more time than what I'm going to spend on it. This is from page 88 of Ilpus Israel. Might I make a comment too that sometimes people misunderstand why I quote Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts quite extensively, perhaps more than the average speaker does. Uh, it's not to prove that I'm right. I don't say, look, Brother Thomas said it, therefore I'm saying it, therefore that proves I'm right. What I'm saying is that the material you're hearing from me, I haven't invented it. I might have refined a few things that another writer might have suggested, but all of these things that you're hearing, the Daniel studies we've done the last two nights, 
It's all been done by somebody before. God's plan was never that the truth had to be rediscovered in every generation and that each child born in the world had to say, right, I'm going to start from scratch, I'm going to find out what the truth is all about. It's something which is handed down from generation to generation. Oh no, we don't accept it blindly. I don't just blindly accept everything Brother Thomas says. I can tell you a few little areas where I, uh, I would differ with him. Totally inconsequential, but I, I don't agree with his interpretation of the angels that sinned. I don't, I don't think uh, he's got it quite right when he quotes Jude as having application to a pre-Adamic creation. So be it. So I don't just take it blindly. But what I'm saying is, go back and read these books and the sort of things you can hear in study days, many parts of the world, it's all been done by somebody before. That's the reason why I put these quotes up. And plus the fact that I do think that these have been put so well, I could not express these thoughts as concisely as these people have. So, on page 88 he says, the serpent representing the animal had propensities and intellect, and so had the woman. But her mental constitution differed from his in having moral sentiments added to her propensities and intellect. So the question is, what is flesh? Well, be it human flesh or animal flesh, it's made up of propensities. Psychologists and that would talk today about human needs, human desires. The aspect of hunger is a propensity. Is there anything wicked about being hungry? No. So the propensities of themselves are not necessarily evil at all. Not necessarily evil. The intellect in the animal, the brain is used to satisfy the propensities. Now in the pure animal, forget the human, it's just a cycle that goes round and round. I feel, therefore I want, therefore I satisfy my needs. So uh, I say, uh, I'm hungry, uh, if I get food, that will satisfy my hunger. So you might walk into a, a restaurant and you might not have any money in your pocket and you might say, I am hungry, there is food, I will go and take it. And someone comes out to you and says, hey, come on, you've just done something wrong. Now, you know that's wrong, but if you'd had your pet dog with you and that pet dog had done the same thing, and the manager had said to that pet dog, you've done something wrong, the dog would look at him and, if we might put words into his mouth, he'd say, wrong? I'm sorry, I don't know what the word wrong means. It's a moral word. So the animals do not have moral sentiments or moral capacity. You can train an animal by reward or punishment not to do certain things. And you know, I'm coming back to my point again, are we in the truth because of reward or punishment? Can you see why we're saying it's God manifestation, not human salvation? Salvation is a Bible doctrine. I repeat it again, I totally believe in the doctrine of salvation. But if we are in the truth just to be saved, are we any better than the animals? That's the question. John's Gospel, of all of the four Gospels, is going to drive home to us the doctrine of God manifestation. It's going to be all about the way that John looked at Jesus and saw God. And by extension, God wants to see that in us. And the world out there should be able to see that in us. And in John chapter 17, our final study tomorrow, when we get there, God willing, in our exhortation, that's what the Lord's going to pray for. 
He's going to pray that the world might be able to see God in us. That's where we're heading towards the exhortational aspect of our, our study together this weekend. Now I've packed a fair bit into, uh, into those uh, opening transparencies and fortunately I've forgotten what time we started so that gives me an excuse but uh, I think we're probably about, uh, about halfway and a bit through. Would that sound about right? I won't ask how much the bit is. So let's just summarise then how we see the Gospel of John <clears throat> and this is what we want to prove. The Gospel of John is unique. It's unique and it's altogether lofty in its method of presentation of the divine message and messenger. John's appeal is always to things spiritual, eternal and far above mankind. There are certain passages we've listed there. And when he disputed those with those who would not humble themselves to acknowledge his claims, he declared such things as, you are from beneath, I am from above. So the Trinitarian says, well, he, he was literally in heaven and he came down through those pearly gates and got in his chariot, got in his chariot first, came through the pearly gates and did all those sorts of things. That's not what he's saying at all. He's talking about where our mind is, where our affections are. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Well, I mean, he was born in this world, but he's talking about an order of things, a cosmos, a, a set, of, set of circumstances. He lays great emphasis on certain words. And by the way, having sort of said how lofty John is, I'm going to suggest that John is perhaps the easiest of the four Gospels to study. Not everybody would initially agree with that. There are certain words that he repeats over and over again. Uh, for example, on that page there, you can't see it in detail, here are some of the words that occur more times in John's Gospel than in all the rest of the Gospels put together. Look particularly at the word uh, Father, the Father occurs 121 times and my Father 35, so if you add those together, that's 156 times the word Father occurs in John's Gospel and if I were to quickly add up uh, all of the others, uh, we don't get past about 70 with the, all the other three Gospels put together. So it's going to be very much about Jesus as the Son of God and that relationship with him as Father. So there are a number of words and uh, by the way that list came out of the Companion Bible which I know Brother David uh, likes to use quite a bit and you'll find it there or from this here uh, or possibly even in some of these notes. These notes uh, have never been published as such but they are on disc and I suspect that, uh, that some of these words may be listed uh, here, um, in fact, uh, that transparency there is exactly what's written on the, on that page there, and you will find a list of of these words. You'll find them somewhere anyway, but I couldn't find them quickly there. But that's what makes John easy. He repeats things because he knows it's a lofty thing. So on the one hand, he doesn't take us up in gradual steps. But what he's doing is he's repeating the same thing over and over again in different circumstances. Talking to the Jewish rulers, talking to Nicodemus, talking to the woman of Samaria, talking to the multitudes, talking to Philip, talking to his disciples in general and it's always the same thing. So, I think we'll just leave it at that. Uh, there are some other comments there about 
certain uh, stories which are exclusive to John. It's been an extended introduction and I did it deliberately but we must bring it to an end and, and move straight into, uh, I'll leave that there because I see some are copying it down, into John itself. <clears throat> By the way, I, I did mean to say at the start that I'm, I'm very happy if we do conduct this uh, somewhat informally. Um, it's a little overawing to see uh, two uh, video cameras and one audio thing and probably a few tape recorders hidden under the sleets or something like that <coughs> and then get up and announce uh, that, it's, uh, that it's informal. But um, to prove that I'll say, well, anything up to now that anybody would like to uh, uh, question, comment or add to? How do you spell the word scared? <laughs> what Brother David is saying is uh, we've, I've got quite a few notes on discs that have never ever been published they were mainly handed out at Bible class in our ecclesia uh, these are some fairly brief well, I don't know how many pages they are well, it goes up to page 83 and that's just the first 12 chapters of John in fact we didn't even finish chapter 12 and then also chapter 17 so they're not uh, extensive notes but uh, uh, if you do want to follow through later on if someone do, does decide to listen to the tapes or something uh, this could be handy because this is either what I said or what I meant to say or what I didn't get time to say so if you find some difference between the notes and what I said I'd go by the notes if I were you because sometimes I do get my words muddled when I'm uh, talking. Words muddled. Did you get the idea? <coughs> you can just take that off the tape. <laughs> so we're down to the serious business and now saying, look, what can we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ? We've looked extensively at the background and I hope by the end of the weekend you'll, see, you'll say, well, I think that was important that we spent that half an hour establishing this. So... What we're going to look at now is the Lord Jesus Christ who is described in John chapter 1 and verse 14 in these words. And the word, logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on in John, he's going to pray to the Father and he's going to say things like, I have declared unto thy, them thy name and will declare it. You know, God's name was, was first really revealed back in Exodus chapter 3. It occurred before then, but the explanation of it was Moses at the bush, wasn't it? What's your name, says Moses? What's the name I'm going to tell the children of Israel? And the name that was given was I am that I am or I will be who I will be. And Moses took that name back to the children of Israel and said his name is he will be. He will be what? He will be manifested in the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now that's all I'm going to say about that. The giving of the name at the bush declared God's purpose. 
his purpose to manifest himself in the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So the term Lord God or Yahweh Elohim, he who will be manifested in the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was his purpose, that's his name. But then a little later Moses said, show me thy glory, thy glory, Exodus 33. And the answer came back in chapter 34, I will cause all my goodness to pass before thee. And once again the angel of God's presence descended and he pronounced the name Yahweh, Yahweh, Ael, he who will be, he who will be revealed in power, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities upon the fathers and upon the children and the children's children under the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. Now that can be summarised as God's goodness and severity, Romans 11.22, or grace and and truth, John 1.14. So that when people looked at Jesus Christ, they saw God. They saw the character of God. So when we talk about God's name, I think the simplest way to understand it is Exodus 3, God's name is associated with his purpose to fill the earth with the mighty ones of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Exodus 33 says this is how he's going to do it it's going to be seen in power in the character of people which represents or replicates or or manifests, if you like, my character, says God. So here it is, all in John 1.14. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we've got, in the rest of the time left to us, I'm not going to try and estimate what it is at the moment, but I want to try and speak reasonably within the time frame. Some very, very interesting stories that now introduce us to the first illustration of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was able to reveal his glory. It starts off initially, though, with a conversation between the Jewish rulers and John the Baptist. In John chapter 1 and verse 19... We read there that this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? When you come across the expression Jews uh, in John's Gospel, it always means the rulers of the Jews as distinct from the disciples or the multitude or something like that. These are the Jewish rulers. So they come up to to John the Baptist and say, look, who are you? They knew he was some significant person. And he confessed, and he denied not, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they said, well, what about Elijah? He said, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, what about that prophet? Uh, Meaning, uh, uh, the prophet like unto, unto Moses. Moses says, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up from among your brethren like unto me. He said, no, I'm not that either. So they said, well, look, we only know of three people. We only know of Messiah, Elijah and the prophet like unto Moses, which of course was to be Messiah anyway. If you're none of those three, who are you? Well, he says in verse 23, 
I am simply the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as said the prophet Isaiah. Now let's assume for a moment we're talking to people who have not done any Bible study, just, just for a moment. An absolutely fundamental rule of Bible study is that when a New Testament writer quotes the old, we've got to go back and see where he's quoting from. And we've got to examine the context that he's quoting from. Because he's not just quoting some nice little pretty text that sounded good that we might put onto a magnet and stick on the front of our fridge. Nothing wrong with doing that, but you've got to make sure that the quote is always understood in its context. So where's the quote from? Well, uh, he says it's from Isaiah. Uh, Our margin, if we've got a marginal reference, will probably tell us it's from Isaiah 40. So let's go back to Isaiah 40 and see how wonderfully this fits in with the things that we've just been talking about earlier in the chapter. I think this is one of those absolutely marvellous connections which proves to us that when we go back, we not only see the context, but it helps us to understand what the New Testament is saying. The New Testament expands the old, the old helps us to understand the new. So we go back to Isaiah 40. John says, I'm nobody, I'm only the voice. Isaiah 40 verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hills shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of Yahweh. Now watch for our words glory. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh hath spoken it. Now that was the declaration. But John says, I'm just this voice. So verse 6 says, the voice said, cry. And one said, what shall I cry? So listen to what the voice now cries. And watch for two significant words. All, all flesh. All flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Stop. What's he been talking about? He says, all flesh is grass. Was the Lord Jesus Christ flesh? Was he like the grass of the field? Did Jesus Christ have to die? Yes. If for no other reason, Jesus Christ had to die because he was mortal. Do you know something? That's almost the beginning and the end of the subject of why Christ died. Oh, I know it was a sacrificial death and all that sort of thing. But you see... If God had made an exception and said Jesus Christ was a sinless man and he shouldn't die, God would not have been right because God said all of Adam's descendants must die. They're all going to be like grass. They're all flesh. Was Jesus Christ the word made flesh? The answer is yes. Was he grass like the rest? Yes. So if God had said, well, I'm going to make an exception and not allow him to die, the righteousness of God would not have been seen. So when we put it together in Bible language, we say the righteousness of God was seen in the death of Jesus Christ. 
And all we are saying, all we are saying is Jesus Christ was mortal and therefore he had to die and God was right in requiring his death because he represented the race he came to save with the same nature. But how could God leave a sinless man in the grave? Well, let's finish the quote. Start again, though, from the beginning of verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word, the word of our God shall stand forever. And what was the Lord Jesus Christ? He was the word made flesh. Where did John chapter 1 verse 14 get the idea from? Got it from Isaiah. But John the Gospel writer says, I'll tell you where I also heard it from. I heard it when John the Baptist was telling these Jewish rulers that he wasn't the Messiah, he wasn't Elijah, he wasn't the prophet like unto Moses. But in quoting and taking them back to Isaiah 40, they had to learn that this one was the forerunner of the one who was going to be presented to the world as the Word made flesh. Now, here is one of the simplest explanations you're ever going to see of the atonement and might I suggest, I don't think there is any need to go any further than this. I'm I'm happy to go further than this. Generally though, it's because somebody has come up with some expression, some perhaps non-Bible expression that needs to be explained. But look look at the atonement here. He's the Word made flesh. Jesus was both Son of God and Son of Man. Leave these Philippians quotes out for the moment. I'm going to bring them up back in a later talk by way of exhortation. We're only looking at the facts at the moment. He was Son of God. He was Son of Man. John describes him as the Word made flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 and 8 to 8. And in the first of Peter chapter 1 verses 24 and 25, Peter takes the same thing up. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and he says, This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Because he says you have also had that incorruptible seed planted in you. Can I put it this way and you'll understand the figure of speech. Jesus Christ died because he was flesh and all flesh is grass. But there was something inside that grave that was incorruptible. Uh, You haven't misunderstood me, have you? It wasn't an immortal soul. It wasn't anything physical, but by a figure it was the word of God, which says Peter lives and abides forever. So by a figure, God was saying there is something I cannot leave in that grave. And brethren and sisters, friends and young people, what we're saying is this, and look, let's turn to that quote of Peter, because in paraphrasing it as I've done, and I've taken little bits out of it, we've missed the power of it. Peter is saying, God wants to be able to see the same things in us. If we pass into the article of death before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the basis of our resurrection unto eternal life will be on the same principle as the fact that God could not leave Jesus in the grave, but not because we were perfect, but because we identified with that which God had done through the Lord Jesus Christ, and listen to these words. First of Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. 
being begotten again. Take my word for it that it's begotten at the moment. We'll deal with that extensively in the next talk. Being begotten again, like the act of conception, there's an implanted seed. Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So he says, a new form of thinking has been developed in you. It's like an incorruptible seed. It's part of the word of God. It lives and it abides forever. You understand the sense in which I see the figure. The Lord went into that grave and he was that incorruptible word perfectly manifested. What Peter is saying, and he now quotes the words of Isaiah, for all flesh is as grass and all the goodliness of all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then Peter adds, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. If God can see that that little incorruptible seed of the word has even just started to germinate, then we see the judgment seat as the final stage in the refining and perfecting of that character. So somebody might only be baptised five minutes. If they've been baptised on the right basis that they are saying, I've got to go under those waters of baptism. Not just merely because I want to be saved, but I want to declare that God is right. Those waters of baptism in the first instance are declaring that I'm, I have every right to be struck dead. And I want to acknowledge that I am worthy only of one thing, that is death. I'm going to go under that water. But God said, that wasn't just an ordinary death. By faith you were dying with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you were saying, I would want to do what Christ did. I want to put to death the old man. But I've got a problem. I haven't been able to do it perfectly like the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is right, I deserve to die. Now, you don't get that from just ordinary fleshly thinking. That's the incorruptible seed of the word has started to germinate. You know that first transparency we started with, that the gospel's got all to do with the righteousness of God. If there are people here who, and I, I just don't know who's who exactly really, I know some and not others in detail, if there are some here who are thinking about being baptised soon, it's very likely that the first question you might be asked is, why do you want to be baptised? And there would be a lot of people around this world would say, so that I can be saved. And there would be a lot of interviewers would say, thank you, now let's go into the next question. Because Mark chapter 16 verses 15 and 16 says, he that believes and is baptised shall be saved. That is correct. But is that the real reason why you wanted to be baptised? Was it not first and foremost to declare the righteousness of God? Wasn't that what Robert Roberts said, the death of Christ has more to do with exalting God than salvation of man? And may I repeat just once again, in case you have forgotten what I said, I do believe salvation is a Bible doctrine. It's absolutely essential. How's God going to populate the earth with a race of immortal people unless he first saves them? But the basis of salvation is that they were doing everything in life to the glory of God. So a person could be baptised five minutes with that frame of thinking, I have done that to declare the righteousness of God. God says, I won't leave you under that water, I bring you out, like I brought the Lord Jesus Christ out of the grave, and I will impute account, reckon unto you, 
a righteousness that you've not earned by works of law, but by faith. Now you see, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, if that little incorruptible seed has started to germinate in you, God's going to say of us, I can't leave that in the grave. There is, by a figure, something of me in that grave. There is something in that grave that can't die. Now, you're not taking me out of context. I know you're not. You know I don't believe in immortal souls. It is a figure of speech. It's the word which liveth and abideth forever. So the doctrine of the atonement is this. For God's righteousness to be declared, as Jesus was flesh, he had to die. But as the word, and to quote Peter, which lives and abides forever, God could not leave him in the grave. So in Bible language we would say that the righteousness of God was declared in in, in Christ's life of perfect obedience. The righteousness of God was declared in Christ's death. And the righteousness of God was declared because God could not leave him in the grave because that grave had in it the incorruptible seed of the word. And so the answer is, what did the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven achieve? It made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That, of course, is another extension to the subject, but it really declared the righteousness of God. I will come back to that transparency in a slightly modified form later on because I want to pick up the fact that this thing just didn't happen uh, in a mechanical sort of way in order to fulfil doctrines, but in fact it's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ which we'll pick up with certain quotes from Philippians later on. So, going back to the Gospel of John, we must set a time limit. How are we going? That must be getting fairly close to... Uh, Actually, uh, you have two minutes. I have two minutes left. Okay. I've got two minutes left. What we've got then back in John chapter 1 is John denying that he is either the Messiah or the prophet like unto Moses uh, or Elijah. So what he does then is he baptises people and when the Lord Jesus Christ came along he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You might also notice and I'll put this to you as a question and we might start the next session by asking a question. In uh, John chapter 1 and verse uh, 26, John says, I baptise with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. What was the significance of that last statement, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose? We'll leave that till the beginning of the next section, session as a question. We're going to leave it there. Another thing which we should have done, and again we will also extend to the next session, is the latter part of John chapter 1, which is Christ's discussion with Nathanael. Nathanael, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. You are going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
And that verse is going to become the key to understanding Christ's discussion with Nicodemus, which is the subject of chapter 3 and of our next study.